praying with the Savior. And there are lots of different ways that you could do a series on prayer. Probably the most, one of the most obvious would be to look at different types of prayer. Last week, we had intercessory prayer. We had a widow crying out for justice until an unjust judge finally cracked and did what she wanted so she wouldn't attack him. Strange story. And then this week, it looks like we've got um, two types of prayer for the price of one. A prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer of confession. Great. We just need a prayer of adoration next week. And then we've got the whole set sorted. Except I'm not sure that's quite what Jesus is trying to do. In Luke chapter 18, give us three model prayers of varying quality. I think he's going rather deeper in these passages. And I think in this parable that that Esther's just read for us, uh, Jesus wants to see not so much different types of prayer as different kinds of prayer. Because the emphasis isn't so much upon what these two men say as it is upon how they come before their God. Um, If last week Jesus taught us uh, to get who our God is, he is not an unjust judge, he is not indifferent to pain, injustice, suffering, he is not going to answer your prayers just for quiet life to get you off his back, but he is your kind and compassionate father who loves to bring justice for his chosen precious ones when they talk to him. Well, if that was last week, uh, getting who our God is, And I think this week is getting who we are, seeing who we are as we come to, as we come before our God in prayer. It's not so much a contrast between two prayers as between two prayers. And I think that's a helpful place to start because probably many of us would prefer to avoid this parable. I actually tried to get out of preaching it. I was hoping that I could do last week and next week and Dan would do this one, but that didn't work, as you can see. And it's not that it's particularly obscure. It's not that it's particularly difficult to understand. It just weighs heavily, this parable. And it's easier to look away than to see our pride laid out before us. But the more time I've spent in this passage, the more the Lord has put on my heart that it's a contrast between two prayers. And these two prayers that they pray are so different because the two prayers are so different. And the two prayers are so different because one of them is saved and the other is not. This is a salvation story. And if we're Christians this morning, then however much of the Pharisee we might see in ourselves, we are actually the tax collector. And that transforms the way we see this passage. But is that the case? Well, I think two reasons. First, look at who is addressed. Um, Look back with me at chapter 18, verse 1. Um, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. 
last week's parable was a parable for Christians, for disciples, to teach them to keep praying and not lose heart, even when it did not appear that God was answering. But then verse 9, the introduction of today's parable, uh, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. The audience is not the same. This story is not told to the disciples. It's told in the presence of the disciples. There'll be things for them to learn from it. But they're not the target audience. No, the target audience is people who were persuaded that they in themselves are righteous. And that is not the Christian. That is the unbeliever. So I don't think we're to read this parable and wonder whether we are more like the Pharisee or like the tax collector. Because if we are Christians, then we are the tax collector. However much we might struggle with pride and comparison. We are not persuaded in ourselves that we are righteous, that we are good enough for God. We have come to God for mercy, and we've received it. We're the tax collector. So I think the first clue is to look at who it's to. The second clue is to look at what's gained. And look down at verse 14, the end of the parable. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Jesus is not saying that one man went home a better Christian. One man went home a bit more holy, a bit more like Jesus, with God a little bit more pleased with him than he was with the other. Jesus says that one man went home justified before God and the other did not. This isn't better Christian versus worse Christian. This is Christian versus not Christian at all. If we are trusting Jesus today, then we are justified before God. We are the tax collector however much we may sometimes feel like the Pharisee. And that has changed how I approach this passage. And I hope it does for you too, to see as we come to it that we are justified sinners who have received God's mercy, who God will lift up. But that's all by way of um, context. As we turn to the story itself, we see that it is a story about approval. We have in it two men who are desperately seeking approval, longing for acceptance. And that is a hunger that we all know. As humans, we long for the approval of others. We long to be declared okay. In fact, we're, we're made to need approval. We're creatures made to find their value outside of themselves, in the bigger picture, given from their creator, as part of the community they're made to be part of. We're not, we're not little gods living in glorious, sovereign isolation, making grand statements about who we are and what we're worth. We're creatures made to need approval. And the great tragedy 
is that we had the approval we needed. We had God's divine it is good stamp upon us and we rejected it. Our parents, Adam and Eve, looked for approval in other ways, in other places, and it badly let them down. And so we're left hunting for approval, longing to find acceptance, so often looking in all the wrong places. And here we have these two men longing for approval. And there's one thing that they've both got right. They've come to God. They've come in prayer. But one of them has still gone so far wrong, while the other has got it right. Let's consider them in turn. At first, the prayer of the unbeliever, see how good I am and reward me. Verses 9 to 12. The prayer of the unbeliever, the approach of the unbeliever towards God, is see how good I am, God, and reward me. Let's read verse 11 again. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Before we begin, it's worth them stripping away our Pharisees' equal pantomime villains assumption. Because that is not how Jesus' first audience would have seen the setting up of this story. Because the Pharisees were good people. They had brought back life to a religion that had largely become empty. They had rediscovered a passion for God's word. They led the way like shining beacons in godly living. Think of the um, the big-name member of staff at a flagship parachurch organization or a big evangelical church that everyone looks up to. Pharisees were good. Our Pharisee heads up to the front of the temple, to where everyone can see, clears his throat ready to lead God's people in prayer, and the vast majority watching would have been glad. And he starts well. God, I thank you. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. Of course it is. Trust this guy to start not with himself and his needs, but even giving glory and thanks to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Okay? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And we're into familiar territory. And he reels off a classic list of sinners. Um, Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, and you'll see similar lists. And he's right. Praise the Lord, he is not like them. He is not a robber. He has not even photocopied one too many chapters of a textbook for a friend who didn't want to pay to buy the book. He is not an evildoer. No list of public sins will catch him out. He is not an adulterer. He's a one-woman man, just as the leaders of God's people should be. He's a good guy. And clearly his eyes aren't quite closed as he's praying, because he clocks the tax collector. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We don't know what the tax collector's history had been, what his life had been like. But we can take some guesses on how tax collectors were thought of 
in this society. And our Pharisee is not like that. He has obeyed God. He's a good guy. And that's just the bad stuff that he doesn't do. He then moves on to the good stuff that he does do. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And fasting is a common theme in the Old Testament, but it was only actually required once a year on the Day of Atonement. But our Pharisee, now he goes above and beyond. He fasts twice every week. For man does not live on bread alone, he knows, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. And he double tithes. He tithes what he gets. He doesn't just give 10% of what he produces. He gives 10% of what he receives. He gives a tenth of his gross salary at the start of the year and then 10% of his net salary each month on top. For everything comes from you, Lord, he knows. And of your own have we given you. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. He's a good guy, this Pharisee. He's upright. He's moral. He goes above and beyond. He isn't making this stuff up. And I think he's probably a pretty kind and decent bloke with it. He was a good guy. But he'd gotten it all wrong. For he thought it was all about him. As he came to God in prayer, he thought it was all about him. Because this prayer of thanksgiving to God It's not really a prayer of thanksgiving to God at all. It was a prayer about himself. God gets a mention as the prayer begins, but then four times in a two-sentence prayer, we get I. And I'm not sure he's really attributing his godliness to God, but rather to himself. This prayer It's a cleverly disguised exercise in self-praise and self-promotion. And while self-promotion may get you somewhere in the secular world, convince your boss that you've done enough to merit a pay rise and you may just get one, convince your teacher that you've done enough to make the grade and they may just put you through even if they're not sure. But it doesn't work with God. God sees straight through such attempts. And the tragedy is that our Pharisee believes his own hype. He genuinely seems to think that he can impress his way to God. He has completely misunderstood the message of the Bible, the nature of sin, the way to salvation, the offer of grace. He thinks it is a case of saying to God, see how good I am and reward me. He impressed God by how well I've served you. Acknowledge God, you owe me one. He's fallen hook, line and sinker for the lie of religion. The lie religion tells us that if you do enough, If you lift yourself up high enough above the rest, if you keep enough of the rules, enough of the time, if you serve faithfully enough, if you give regularly enough, what can God do but be impressed with you? What can he do but let you into heaven? 
for you will have earned your place, says religion. But the problem with religion is that while it does a great job of impersonating faith, it is really no different from having no faith at all, from irreligion. For where faith is all about God, religion, like irreligion, is all about me. Me doing what I want, the way I want to. Irreligion doesn't care about God's approval. I'll steal from those I uh, collect taxes from and then squander the money in brothels and casinos. I'll find my approval wherever I want. Thank you very much, God. But religion is not really interested in what God thinks. Instead, religion gets out its list of good works and marches right into God's presence and demands his approval on my terms. I get to say, God, that you accept me because I have done what I needed to do. Religion utterly fails to dig below the surface. It looks at the calm lake of good works and assumes that that is all there is to see. It looks at behavior and ignores the heart. It misses the coveting that lies behind the failure to steal. The lust that cloaks itself inside sexual purity. The pride that lurks beneath fasting. The jealousy that hides within generosity. Religion tells us that sin can be avoided. But if you can get the cup squeaky clean enough on the outside, it must be clean within. Religion turns godliness into a competition. And it takes assurance, not from who God is, from what he has said, what he has done, but from how much better I am than the person next to me. And religion turns service into a God-impressing work of the human will to give me a leg up in the kingdom instead of the grateful response of a thankful heart. Religion, like irreligion, is all about me. It has nothing to do with God. It does not lead to salvation. And yet it is tempting. It is so tempting because of what it promises. Easy assurance. A way to feel good about myself. A speedy boarding pass into heaven. But don't fall for its lies. For it will leave you standing on the runway, empty-handed, as you watch the plane take off into the sky. Let's move on now to the second part of this, what should have been a very predictable contrast. Great Bible teacher Pharisee versus despicable payday lender tax collector. And let's see how Jesus flips what should have been a predictable contrast onto its head. For the unbeliever prays, see how good I am, God, and reward me. But the prayer of the believer is, see how sinful I am, and forgive me. Verses 13 and 14. The approach of the believer towards God is, see how sinful I am, God, and forgive me. 
the camera pans over to the tax collector now. Uh, he's been there the whole time, though only our eagle-eyed Pharisee paid him any attention. And verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is that it? It's going to be a short prayer meeting, if that's all you've got to say, tax collector. But what matters more than the extent and the eloquence of his words is how our tax collector comes before God. For he stood at a distance. He hides at the back of the temple. He is not here to be seen by people. His interest is vertical, not horizontal. But he would not even look up to heaven. So clearly does he know himself and know his God that he gets that were he to look up to God, he would see someone who is so good, so pure, so perfect, that he would not be able to bear how sinful he would be revealed to be by comparison. Instead, he beat his breast. A strange image for us um, makes us think of pretending to be Tarzan, perhaps. But in our tax collector's time, to bang your arms on your chest was a way to express your frustration, your shame, your sorrow at your sin. And he prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a prayer to and a prayer about God. He puts himself in the passive role. His prayer is all about God and what God can do for him. Apparently, in the original Greek, it's a definite article. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He sees not his good works or his attempt at them, but the depth of his sin and cries out that God might save him, that God might give him approval. And so deep is his sin, so desperate is his situation that it doesn't even occur to him to look around, to consider how he might be doing compared to the person next to him and take a little comfort. He's not the only sinner in the temple today maybe not even the worst. He has eyes only for God. It is God and God alone that he looks to, that he cares about. And the word he uses for have mercy is quite an unusual one. It's only used here. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 in the New Testament, and there in Hebrews 2, it's translated, make atonement that Jesus might make atonement for the sins of the people, that he might have mercy on them. So it's a strong word, a strong concept. It takes us to Exodus, Leviticus, numbers of the God who found a way to make his people right with him, that he might live with them through the sprinkling of the blood of an innocent lamb onto the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant. Atone me, this tax collector prays. Make a way for me to be made right, O God. Make a way for me to be forgiven. And then we get the glorious verse 14. What a precious line it is. I tell you, summarizes Jesus, that this man, 
rather than the other, went home justified before God. Two men came that day searching for approval. Two men came longing to be declared right. One man got it. And it was not the man that Jesus' first audience would have been expecting. It was the tax collector, the lowly, despicable, waste of a life, done no good, payday lender. It was he who in that moment received God's mercy, was washed clean by the soon-to-be-shed blood of Christ, was accepted into God's kingdom, adopted as a son, and seated on high. The tax collector asked for mercy, and he got it. He came seeking approval. He found it, not in himself, but in Jesus. And he received this glorious promise that having humbled himself, he would be exalted. How could that be the case? How could such a wonderful reversal occur? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus' blood was soon to be shed. Because Jesus' blood was about to be sprinkled before the Father's throne. Because Jesus died so that a holy God might be able to show mercy to an unworthy people. That he might be able to lift up the eyes of those who cannot look up, that he might still the hands of those who beat their breasts, that he might bring to the front those who stand at a distance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, said Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There is one man here in this story who is poor in spirit, who mourns, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, and it is not the Pharisee. But because Jesus was willing to give his life, he has been raised to the very highest place because he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage made himself nothing and humbled himself even to death on a cross where he has been lifted up to the highest place and so we will be lifted up with him. And isn't this one of the best storylines in the Bible? I certainly think it's one of Luke's favourites. He shows it to us again and again, these reversals, this extraordinary grace that comes to people you would not expect. I think of Mary in chapter 1, who we looked at back in Advent, singing of how God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Think of the shepherds in chapter 2, the first people to hear the good news of Jesus' birth. Think of the Samaritan being unveiled as the better neighbour 
than the priest or the Levite in chapter 10. Think of the disabled and the poor being drawn into the heavenly banquet in chapter 14. The down and out renegade son being celebrated in chapter 15. The beggar Lazarus finding his place by the side of Abraham in Luke chapter 16. God loves this storyline. Not that he takes pleasure in bringing low the wicked. He longs that all would humble themselves, that all might be lifted up. And we read great stories in Luke 2 of those who do humble themselves. The centurion, chapter 7. Jairus, the synagogue leader of chapter 9. Zacchaeus, coming up in chapter 19. There is no quota, no maximum amount of people that the Lord would lift up if only they would humble themselves. The offer is there for all, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Our Lord delights to take the humble, those who know that they have nothing, those who come to him desperately in prayer and lift them up. And because Jesus has died, been raised, and been exalted, God can do that. But if you are not yet a Christian this morning, then God can't do that. He can't show you mercy. For however good you are in God's books, as you think, following the rules of religion, or however good you aren't in God's books, if you follow irreligion, Regardless, you have an untreated heart problem with sin. And Christ's blood alone is the cure. If you are not yet a Christian, the best you've got is what this Pharisee has. To tell yourself that you are better than other people and to say to God, see how good I am. Reward me. Good luck with that. But if we are Christians this morning, and brothers, sisters, we are the tax collector. We have come humbly to God and admitted our sin. And we have received his mercy. We have been justified. And we will be exalted. It's a done deal. For those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We will be lifted up. It's a done deal. So don't slip back. Don't slip back into looking inside yourself or around at others when you could be looking up. Don't let yourself forget how helpless you are, how far short you have fallen, how great your need of Jesus is. Don't stop living each day and each breath by God's mercy. Don't slip back. Don't slip back into finding your assurance in your avoidance of sinful behaviours, in your godly service, in how you're doing compared to them. Remember, God is delighted that you're here today. He's delighted that you read your Bible and pray at home. He's delighted that you give your money. He's delighted that you serve the church. But he isn't impressed. That's not what it's about. It's all about what he has done for you 
in Jesus. It's all about what he has said over you in Jesus. So find your approval there. Find your assurance in Christ. For if you are a Christian today, then you have received mercy. You are justified before God and you will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we repent of how tempted we are to justify ourselves before you, to look around at others and spot their faults and see the areas in which we think we are succeeding. But Father, we thank you that if we have come to you, if we are Christians today, then we are the tax collector. We have received your mercy. We stand justified before you. And you will lift us up, just as you lifted up Christ. Help us to trust that and to rejoice in that truth. Amen.